Colossians chapter 1 for one more week, and um, we'll probably uh, get, get, through, uh, get through all of it. And um, as we've been walking through this, um, one of the big things of this particular chapter, of course, has been reminding ourselves of who Christ is, and of course our connection uh, with who Christ is, and we spent a fair amount of that uh, time last week uh, as we went through uh, verses 15 and following, uh, looking at that, and there were these phrases that were descriptions, and uh, as, we, uh, as we lead into today's passage, which will start in verse 21, just want to read these phrases. Um, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created. He's before all things. In him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning. And he's the firstborn of the dead. And all of those attributes uh, in some way likely relate to some of the uh, heresies and false teachings uh, that were going on in the Colossian church. And we'll see more about that in the coming chapters as as. Paul gets in and, and names specifically some of what was going on. But um, this whole chapter, we, we need to keep in mind the importance of who Christ is. And that's uh, just worth reviewing. And, and I said before that, as we were wrapping up last week, that uh, all of the kind of pseudo-Christian cults, you know, the, uh, the, the cults that are uh, at least maybe use similar vocabulary to Orthodox Christianity, um, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the um, uh, Latter-day Saints, and all that. Um, what they have in common is they all get Jesus wrong. They all get Jesus wrong. They, they, they say he's not something that he is, or he is something that he's not, and uh, many of those uh, attributes are, are in that passage. So, uh, just continue to remember that because um, we are we encounter some of those same heresies today as they did back then. The other thing, uh, by way of review, uh, I suggested that verses nine and ten of Colossians chapter one are, are key verses, and so I want to hit those one more time. It says, "And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you." asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And I might paraphrase that, and, and as a setup for today, to say that Paul wants us to remember who we were, to remember who Christ is, as we focused on so much last week, to remember who we are now, and then to remember what we're here for. We'll hear in the latter part of today's passage where Paul says, this is what I'm here for, and I think it's a setup for us to reflect on, what am I here for? And um, so, remember who we were, who Christ is, who we are, and what are we here for? And those are just some of those essential questions that are worth thinking about. If you don't have a really great answer to those, uh, then that's worth reflecting on. So, under the category of remembering who you were, 
Uh, Let's look at verse 21. Paul says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. All right, so what does the New American Standard say? Verse 22. And although you were former alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. All right, pretty close. I, if it makes things simpler, I don't mind using New American. All right, well, why don't we do that? I mean, that cuts the cost in half. And uh, I'm, I'm, if he said I'm stubborn, see, if I don't change, then that means I'm stubborn too, right? So, <laughs> so I'll, uh, I'll be flexible. Um, no, I like New American. I, in fact, up until, uh, up until a few years ago, that's all I ever used to. So um, uh, no problem there. Um, all right, I rejoice in my... No, let's see, verse 21. And you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... So this is who we were, who we were. So alienated, that means estranged. You know, there's a, we are separated um, uh, from uh, God in two ways, it says in this verse. First of all, we're hostile in our mind. We are estranged from God in our minds, in the way we think. You know, the, the non-Christian is essentially anti-God and pro-self, right? It's all about me. Who else would it be? Right? Aside from God, of course it's all about me. Anti-God, pro-self. Now, this is, a, this is a problem, right? If you're all about yourself, then society's really got problems. Um, thankfully, within man is the echo, you might say, the, the um, residual effect of the fact that we are created in God's image. This concept of a conscience um, that is the the I, I think an echo is a good thing the, the the residual image the the evidence of the fact that we are in create, created in God's image so that even many non Christians not all but even many non Christians we'll have at least some bit of agreement as to this is right and this is wrong. Um, in fact, they can kind of paint themselves in a box a little bit because it gets into this concept of, well, how do you decide if something's absolutely right or absolutely wrong? right? Um, because unless you tie those moral absolutes to God, you've got to tie them to something else. So you can talk about, well, society agrees. Well, but what if your whole society agrees and it's wrong? You know, like if you lived in Germany back in the 40s, and an entire country, maybe not in agreement, but at least was okay with the idea that 
some races were simply better than others and some races were simply literally not worth being around and in fact should be exterminated. The same thing has happened in Central Africa, this uh, genocide and so forth. So even if society agrees about something, that doesn't make it right. Where people really get offended is when their, their own sense of something is messed up, right? Somebody takes your stuff. Well, that was wrong. Why'd they take my stuff? Well, because they did what was right for them. So, um, so unless you have some moral absolute, you just do. You just do. Um, so there's this little bit of a residual effect of the fact that we're created in the image of God, but we can suppress that, and our own selfishness can easily rise above that. Um, so yeah, we were estranged in our minds. We were doing our own thing, and in fact, our view was, as it says, hostile in mind. You know, non-Christians, you might say, don't get it, right? Non-Christians don't get it. They don't see the world that we, the way that we do. Um, it's, in fact, they think that it's silly, some of the things that we do, Right? That's why Christians very often are, are looked down on by the media as um, perhaps uneducated or, or um, just, you know, oversimplifying things and, you know, not really, not really, not really grasping the full impact of, of things. And, and uh, there's a lot of condescension, you know, and of course sometimes Christians haven't help things because some of the fringe people of Christianity do things that are stupid that I think are stupid too. Um, and of course, if I think it's stupid, it must be. Um, <laughs> um, but they just don't get it. And uh, non-Christians just don't get it. And we were estranged in our minds before Christ. And, and Paul refers to this in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, you know, to the non-Christian, this is all just foolishness. This is folly. He says in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it's the power of God. And he goes on down and says in verse 20, Where's the one who's wise, who's a scribe, who's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. You know, and Paul's acknowledging, you know, I know this sounds silly, y'all, but, but this is the truth. And, and it's God's fault that it's such a silly idea that you could get saved without having to work for it just by accepting it by faith. I know that sounds crazy, but, but that's the way it is. Um, so, yeah, non-Christians don't get it. They don't look at the way the world we do, and they're hostile in their mind. And that was us before Christ. And it says the second way we were alienated from God is that we were doing evil deeds. We were estranged in our deeds. So not only is our mind hostile to God, so are our actions. And um, we, we look at the world. We look at the world and all the craziness and corruption and sin and hate and all the manifestations of that and we're shocked by that but we shouldn't be shocked by it really um, 
because they're hostile in their actions, just like they're hostile in their minds. And for us to expect otherwise, you know, we shouldn't expect otherwise. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says about the people that, that aren't going to be part of God's kingdom, he says the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, the greedy, the drunkards, revilers, swindlers, none of these people inherit the kingdom of God. And then in verse 11 he says, and such were some of you. Right? That, that was you guys before Christ. You know, you know, it's like Paul, you know, left off names. Thankfully, they were thinking, I'm glad he didn't name my name. But, you know, you say, you know, I know you guys. You were, you were just out of control. Of course, we know the first Corinthians were kind of out of control. And he says, and such were some of you. And then he says in this great verse, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. So that leads us into verse 22 of Colossians. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that's who we were. And then verse 22 is who we are. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So, why is it that the death of Jesus is enough to make us holy and blameless? Well, it's all those things I read. He's God, the creator, the uh, reconciler of all things. The, when God dies, it counts. That's enough. That's sufficient sacrifice to cover it. So if you don't believe Jesus was God, then anything less than God wouldn't be enough to, to cover all the sin of the world. So it directly reflects back this, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. His body of flesh. There was this big debate. Was Jesus... God, okay, well, he might have been God, but he couldn't have been man. There were some people had no problem with wrapping their head around Jesus as God, but they couldn't believe that he could also be man. Some people took it the other way. Well, Jesus is man, therefore there's no way he could have been God. But we know that he was both. He was fully God, fully man. And for that reason, what he did in his body of flesh by his death, as it says in verse 22, it was enough in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Um, before Christ, not at all worthy to come before God. After Christ, totally worthy. Totally worthy. Verse 23, it says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Uh, just to take this last phrase first, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. If that phrasing 
sounds familiar. It's a, a type of a thought that we come back to periodically. It's, it's more fully expressed in Romans chapter 1, where it talks about, you know, how is it that everybody... Oh, my word. How is it that everybody should, should know who God is and should know um, uh, about him? And he says, well, even creation basically preaches who God is. And, and Paul's kind of echoing that thought right there. This phrasing, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you've heard, that's not saying that, that you are saved if you continue. Um, the, they say the better phrasing is there um, uh, since you'll continue. Um, since you've um, been stable and steadfast, you know, you will demonstrate all this. This stable and steadfast terminology apparently was written in such a way to highlight the idea of um, the Colossae, that, that we talked about it being in a river valley there east of Ephesus. Um, a lot of earthquakes there and still are in that part of Turkey. Uh, you hear about Turkish earthquakes still today. Um, so the earthquakes are very common and this concept of, of being part of something that was stable and steadfast, this foundation that you could count on would have really meant something to the folks in Colossians or at Colossae. And the concept is the foundation's there. You're going to build on it. It's not like the foundation shifty. You're going to build on this. And in essence, as you build and, and, and improve what, what Christ has started, it, it's evidence of your faith. right? It's evidence. It's, it's proving your faith. It's not that your faith um, or your conversion is in doubt. All right, verse 24. Now, in verse 24, Paul says some things that he really didn't mean to say. And he says them in a way that he really didn't mean to say them uh, because they're very confusing. And uh, I, I really think if he, if he had another shot, he probably would have just deleted it and started over because it is kind of confusing. And I, I, think, I think he might would... I'm being facetious here, of course. Uh, but this is a really odd little verse. So let's read it. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So far, so good, right? And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. So, read one way, it sounds like, okay, um, I'm suffering for the sake of the church and picking up the slack that Christ left off. Well, we know that that can't be what he's saying because he would be contradicting not just himself, but pretty much all of Scripture. So what is he saying? Now rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body that is the church. So first off, the commentators are quick to point out that this word afflictions uh, has to do with the turmoil and daily trials and that sort of thing that, yes, Christ experience, but this word is never used in conjunction with Christ's death on the cross. It's never used in conjunction with the atonement. Uh, so it's not a word that's connected with that work that Christ did. Um, so here are some of the, um, 
some of the ways that commentators have explained this. And I, I'll quote them um, at, at a little bit of length here. Um, One commenter says, uh, clearly he does not mean that something was lacking in the atoning work of Jesus, that the suffering of the cross was not sufficient to settle the question of sin. Um, afflictions are what Jesus went through before the cross from the opposition of the enemy and so forth. But there's nothing lacking what he did on the cross. Um, some people have said that back in the day, um, there was a, a thinking that the church... Um, that Christians were were all going to endure, and this, I guess, turned out to be the case, but that they were all going to endure a lot of suffering before they kind of came out the other side, so to speak. And, and that Paul is kind of saying, you know, um, I'm catching some of the leftover heat that, that, you know, Christ would have otherwise endured, um, and, and we're all going to do that. You know, all of us, if we claim the name of Christ, are going to be, we're going to have some times when we suffer for the cause of Christ. And Paul seems to be saying, you know, I don't mind being a lightning rod. I don't mind being the focus of Rome's attention right now. Um, because if I am, then maybe I'll take some of the heat off of you. Um, so some people say something along those lines. Uh, the message paraphrase, uh, the writer of that understand, understands verses 24 and 25 like this. It says, I want you to know how glad I am that it's me sitting here in this jail and not you. There's a lot of suffering to be entered into in this world, the kind of suffering Christ takes on. I welcome the chance to take my share in the church's part of that suffering. When I became a servant in this church, I experienced this suffering as a sheer gift, God's way of helping me serve you, laying out the whole truth. I don't know if, if that makes it any more clear, but um, the, just to, to, to make the, the comment that um, Paul is not saying that Christ's work on the cross was lacking, um, I look at it as leftovers. There is... Um, even though Christ finished the work of atonement, um, until this world is over, there will continue to be suffering. And those that want to advance the cause of Christ will occasionally be called on to suffer. And Paul's saying, right now, I'm feeling it, I'm in jail, you're not, uh, but I'm okay with it because I know that's going to advance the cause of Christ. One, um, one final comment from the ESV Study Bible says, what was lacking in Christ's afflictions was the future suffering of all who, like Paul, will experience great affliction for the sake of the gospel. So you get the idea. But this is one of those verses that does require a little bit of, of um, kind of working through. All right. In verse 26, we pick up this comment or this concept of the mystery. Verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the mystery was that all of the promises, all the promises of redemption that you heard about all throughout the Old Testament, 
the promises that the Jews claimed exclusively for themselves. The mystery that has been revealed is that it wasn't just for the Jews. You guys can come in too. You guys can be full partakers of the gospel. It's open to everybody. Everybody can connect. You're not an outsider anymore. You belong here. Um, you, all of the all of the treasures, all of the promises, they're for you too. They're for you too. Um, they're for you too. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, verse 28, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. We talked about those words of energy and power last time. Paul's picking that concept up again. It's his energy working in me. And here we have Paul's statement of what he's here for. He says, warning and teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ. As a pastor, loving this church that he's heard about, feels like he knows them, and he's like, you know, I just want you guys to grow up in Christ. That's what I'm here for. And I want you to, I want you to move deeper. I want you to be mature. I, I don't want you to fall down when some rumble comes, like the houses do around here with the earthquakes. I want, there is going to be suffering that's coming, and I want you to be able to stand firm for that, and I want you to be mature. I want you to be ready, because trouble's coming. That's the notion there. Um, I don't know what it is. I mean, and I think maybe that's not true. Maybe if we thought about it, we all would know what it is. But we know that in times of great suffering for the church, there's, also, there's often been a purification of the church where you really, you know, people have to really get serious and decide what they believe and, what they, and why they believe it. And the church starts to grow. The church starts to grow. And, and um, the church doesn't necessarily need governmental help. You know, we know the church in China is growing in spite of, not because of governmental health. The church in Africa is growing in spite of the conditions there, not because of them. Um, we've been enjoying a period of uh, kind of the legacy of the people in earlier generations who infused our government with Christian principles, and those Christian principles have kind of given us some protections but now those are kind of falling away, and uh, I think we've seen that the strength of the government ultimately is never going to be much stronger than the strength of its people. And as the populace starts to lose their moral compass, as we've talked about, um, the government's going to be swayed by that, and that's why we need to continue to ground the things that we feel uh, are right and wrong. We need to ground them in Scripture not based on our culture. Um, I better quit. <laughs> it's like 
the time just disappeared. Uh, any comments? Any any thoughts that this came to mind? We'll, we'll wrap up. Um, Brandon Heath wrote a song several years ago. He said, "Give me your eyes. You know, help me see the world, God, the way that you see them. And if we see the world as estranged, as hostile in their mind and hostile in their actions, we shouldn't be surprised by anything that they do, right? What the challenge is, is when we see those behaviors, can we look past that and see a heart that just needs Jesus? We don't need to fix their behavior, we need to fix their heart, or we need to let God fix their heart. And all of our efforts, whether it's through laws or statutes or anything, none of that's going to fix the behavior. Only if the heart's right will the behavior follow. Um, like Paul said, and, and you were just like this. All of us were no different as far as the blackness of our heart aside from Christ. And so as we look and see all the craziness in the world, in some way we've got to say, you know, they just don't know Jesus. That's their real problem. Their problem isn't that they don't have the right view on abortion. The problem isn't that they don't have the right view of fidelity to their spouse. Um, that's not the problem. The problem is they don't know Jesus. And, and that's, that's what we've got to keep preeminent in our minds. All right, I better hush so we can close. Father, I thank you for Jesus, that he is our hope. He is in us. Christ in us, the hope of our glory. And that you will help us to see people the way you see them and help us to take on the sufferings that you have for us, as Paul did, for the furtherance of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.